Alright, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is April 14th, 2023, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I am in Indianapolis, Indiana, speaking via phone with Brent Steele, who is located in Bedford, Indiana, is that correct? That's correct. And we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? I was born in Indianapolis, um, August the 25th, 1947. Okay. I, was, I spent my first 18 months there. I was born at the Methodist Hospital. Dad was working for Governor Gates as his executive secretary and going to law school at night. So, and he, I, they lived on the fairgrounds. The little house is still there uh, on the fairgrounds, and uh, and uh, that's where I spent my first 18 months. Oh, okay. Then once he graduated from law school, he moved back home to Bedford. Interesting. And what were your parents' names? My father was Rule Winton Steele, and my mother was Marie Steele. <clears throat> Her maiden name was Alice. And when did your family first get to Indiana? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, <laughs> we traced it back uh, about as far as we can. They... Um, my great-great-whatever grandfather, he, he came into Indiana. Uh, he was a, a Hessian soldier, <laughs> fought on the wrong side. Wow. He was, he was a Hessian soldier and uh, was captured and uh, signed a non-combat pledge, went down into Virginia, came up into Kentucky and into southern Indiana. So we... the. Ellis's and the Whitting Hills and, uh, were here at the very beginning of the statehood. And uh, and as far as we know, we don't go as far back on the Steele side, but, but we know that my great-grandfather Moses Steele was uh, a Methodist preacher here in, in Lawrence County back in the eight, late 1800s. So. Wow, okay. So, so some fairly deep Indiana roots then to... About as deep as you can get. Yeah. Cool, okay. Um, and uh, did you have any siblings? Yes, I, I have a brother. He's my law partner, Byron Steele. He's 81 years of age. He's six years older than me. I'm 75. And then I have a sister, Darlene McSoley, and she practiced law with me. She was 14 years older than I was, but she, she died about five years ago. Ah, uh, Okay. It was a uh, law firm was steel, 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 McSoley, McSoley. Her yeah. son was a lawyer, too. Wow, okay. And uh, how would you describe your childhood? Well, I, I had a, you know, being the third, my mom and dad had me when they were 40. And my, oh, my brother and sisters accused me of being able to get away with everything that they couldn't. <laughs> because they said mom and dad were tired and uh, I took advantage of that but uh, and I probably did I had an average uh, childhood I grew up in the 50s and was adventurous spent a lot of time outdoors had a lot of friends spent time down on Salt Creek camping out and playing with stuff we probably shouldn't have played with Blew some things up, 
had a good time. But uh, then in high school it was during the 60s. And uh, it was sports and girls and cars, you know. Yeah. And uh, who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Well, the most influential would have to be your parents. I mean, yeah. That dad was, um, you know, he was a type A personality, and he was he was a control freak. Uh, he liked to keep control of things. They'd lived through the depression, and uh, he was. He, he was constantly reminding us of what government can or can't do to you. And um, he was a lawyer, and, and uh, I grew up in that regard. That uh, he was on the school board at that time when I grew up, and I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'd have to say that that was the most influential person. Okay, mom was more. Uh, spiritual and that she was more um, cognizant of people's feelings probably than than dad. Uh, she had told me never to judge someone until I walked a mile in their moccasins. That's an old saying, but she lived by it. And uh, she said, "There's you can find good in just about everybody if you look hard enough. She was just not a she, she was a forgiving soul. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did you know about your family's political beliefs growing up? Well, I knew a lot about it. Um, my dad ran for Senate uh, when I, in 19, probably about, he was in the Senate for eight years, so I'd say he ran in 19, about 1954-55, and he served a, to about 1963, eight years. So I watched him in that, you know, to campaign and, and to uh, get elected. And, and then he was gone. I mean, he, for so many months a year, uh, back then they only served every other year. They didn't have a session every year. And it was a part-time legislature. So he would be gone, and it would just be me and Mom and Byron at home. My sister had already gone on to college, so it was just the three of us at home. Yeah. But yeah, I was aware of politics and what it can do to a family. Okay. Um, what schools did you attend growing up? Well, Parkview Elementary, then Bedford Junior High, Bedford High School, went to Indiana University, Graduated from there in 69 and went to law school in 70. I graduated in 72. From 69 to 72, I taught school at Indianapolis School 94 and the George Buck Elementary School in Indianapolis on the east side, out close to 42nd and Post Road in that area. And then uh, went to law school at night. Then graduated in 72, moved back home, and started practicing law. Wow, okay. And uh, so what did you think of your educational experiences then at all those different levels? Well, I've, I learned to, to uh, 
game. I had to, I'll never forget, I had a, we had taken English composition in advanced courses in high school, so you could test out of some of your college courses, and I ended up in a second year comp class my, in my freshman year. And uh, I had a professor, I can't exactly remember his name at this time, uh, but he wore a tweed suit every day to class, and it had dried red, red enamel on it, and that was it. And he was the faculty advisor for the Students for Democrat Society. And I hadn't a clue what that what meant at that time. And he, he asked us to write a paper. Now, this is 1966. So I wrote a paper of why we uh, should be in Vietnam. Hmm. I didn't realize that he had gotten that red paint thrown on him as an anti-war protester, and he wore that suit every day as a, as a badge of his protest. Oh, wow. But, uh, so he gave me an F on the paper and a B. B minus and an F. He said your your uh, your technique and your skill as a writer was a B minus, but I'm giving you an F because of its content. See me. So as a freshman, I was scared to death. I made the appointment. And I went and visited him at his office, and he proceeded to tell me that I was like a little bird. I'll never forget these. He said, you're a little bird growing up in the nest of your parents down in Bedford, and they sit around the dinner table, and you learn to chirp the same songs that your mother and your father chirp. You need to start thinking for yourself. Go rewrite this paper. Hmm. So I rewrote the paper, and I wrote the paper on the uh, Great Pyramid of Giza. And my second paper, I wrote it on the breeding habits of the monarch butterfly. And I, he, and he had, he gave me good grades. Uh, but he wrote one time on my paper. He says, "Steel, I know what you're doing." <laughs> <laughs> But I wasn't going to play his damn game. I had an opinion. I was entitled to it. Yeah. And he was trying to indoctrinate me. And I just, I learned very on, very early on, you give them what they want to hear. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Or don't. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't give him what he wanted to hear, but I, but I learned to, to do it a different way. Right, yeah. Okay. Um, did you have any favorite subjects in school? History. Okay. That's my favorite. And, and you, then biology. I love biology. So. Oh, okay. Cool. So, how did you view the state of Indiana growing up? I don't think I did. Okay. Um, they were somebody that going to issue me my driver's license and that was yeah. about the extent of it that I knew as a young person and did you ever travel outside of the state much oh yeah we went on a vacation about every year we went to Florida an awful lot oh okay dad, dad loved Florida and, 
and uh, they had friends down in Miami, in the Miami area, so uh, spent a lot of time in, in Miami. Okay. We went out. We went out to California and Oklahoma. My brother-in-law was stationed at, during the Korean War. At, uh, before he went overseas to Korea, he was at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. We went out there to see him before he was shipped out. We we did different things. Yeah. Did you ever like think much about what it meant to be from Indiana? Did you have any pride about being from Indiana growing up as a kid when you'd go to other places, or you just not process that much? Or well, I think the the most obvious thing was that when you travel around, and especially when you go into the Southwest. Once you've been west and come back into Indiana, you see how beautiful and green everything is and the topography. And it was obvious to me that southern Indiana was one of the most beautiful places in the, in the entire United States. And I still believe that. I've done a lot of traveling since I've become an adult. Yeah. Been, been to almost every state. I think I have been to every state. But um, I still think, uh, you know, Pennsylvania can rival it, but uh, I still think Southern Indiana is some of the most beautiful area in the world. Yeah. With trees are just, they're really blessed with being in the center of a hardwood, one of the hardwood capitals of the United States is beautiful. Our woods are beautiful. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, In what ways did your awareness of politics change when you were in college? Well, it was the 60s, and it was extremely turbulent. And there were riots and wads, and places were burning. In fact, the, the very first day that I, I was, I knew I had a job in Indianapolis. As a, and I was trying to find my school. I wanted to be able to, I was, at that time, I was living in Bedford and driving back and forth every day because I couldn't find a place to live in Indianapolis, and I wanted to be able to find the school so that I could show up on time. And I I was supposed to have an interview with a, a man named Rutan, R-U-T-A-N. He was, it was my first, he was going to assign me to a school. I knew that, and, and I, I didn't know which one. And um, at that time, and I ended up downtown in Indianapolis, and there was a riot going on at that time. I don't know, remember what it was about, but uh, I remember I was out walking on the street, and a, an Indianapolis policeman came up to me, and he had a German Shepherd, and he said, what in the world are you doing here? And I said, I am lost. And he said, you need to get in your car and get out of here. And I did. Hmm. But um, this you know, that's, the 60s were a turbulent time. And, yeah. Uh, we'd lost, we'd had John F. Kennedy killed, Bobby Kennedy killed, Martin Luther King assassinated, Vietnam War protests going on everywhere. And uh, I was not an anti-government. I was, I was not for disestablishment. I, I did not believe in that. And I still don't. Yeah, interesting. Okay. 
my 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 opinion of how you should conduct yourself in society. You know, I don't believe in the riots and the burning and the. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe that. Right. In that. And I didn't believe it when I was 17, 18, 21, 35, or 75. I've, I've, I've maintained that core belief from the time I was a kid. Yeah. Now, did your political beliefs sort of deviate at all from what your parents' political beliefs were when you were in college, or did it pretty much match your parents still when you were in college? My dad was probably more moderate than I was. Okay. Uh, he, he was a political guy. He was the uh, highway chairman under Edgar Wickham. He got a lot of things done. And he, he told me, he said, you know, he did not want me to get into politics. Hmm. And they had asked me to run for, Paul Manwater had been after me to, he was the speaker, eventually the speaker of the house, and he'd been after me to run back when I was in my 30s. And uh, my dad, and I was practicing law at that time, and my dad did not want any of his kids to ever get involved in politics, and I don't know why. Maybe he'd seen a side of it that, I don't know, you're very protective of your kids. Maybe he saw a side of politics that he thought was negative. Maybe he saw a side of politics that he was afraid his kids couldn't uh, handle mm. or that would hurt his kids. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, he he told me that he did not want me to run, so I honored his decision. And after my father died, I ran for the House of Representatives. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was, he, what he didn't know wouldn't hurt him. But um, I'd always run to run for Senate because it, my dad had held that seat and I wanted to get involved in politics. And, yeah. Um, and uh, Becky Skelman was a, was a very close friend of mine. We grew up in the Republican Party here as young Republicans mowing graveyards and cemeteries trying to make some money for the, or a good publicity for the Republican Party and stuff. And she, uh, she was going to run. Uh, she came to my office and said, I know you've always wanted to run for the Senate. And I, at that point in time, Dad had had his diagnosis of cancer. And I knew that he wasn't going to make it. And I knew that the, the law firm was going to, you know, not only have the loss of your father, but your best friend and your your law partner and I said I just can't do that at this time. Yeah. And besides, Dad did not would never let. He would never approve of even back when I was in the House. There was a man named John Chase. He was the Republican County Chairman, and he wanted to run for state representative. And he said, "You can't run against another Republican like that. He's your County Chairman. You, he's he's paid his dues. He's gone through the ropes." And he says, "You wait your turn." And I stood down on that. And uh, she was going to run for, I can't remember the name of the, the senator, it was from Seymour for this district. And I said, well, even if Dad wasn't sick, sick Becky, I couldn't run it. I wouldn't break my dad's commandment that you don't run against another Republican in the primary. Well, she did. She filed her, her uh, candidacy in the 
the old senator folded tent. He, he announced that it was time for him to retire. He wasn't up to the fight. So I knew once she got in the Senate, as popular as she was, she would hold that seat. And I wouldn't run against her in the primary, obviously. Yeah. So that only left the House of Representatives open for me. And after Dad died, I waited a little bit and then I ran. But, but my, my dad's political beliefs, he, he'd always said, you know, the pendulum swings both ways. You will not always be in power. And you've got to be able to work both sides of the aisle. Because some days you'll be in the minority. And if you were front, if you treated the Democrats right and you were in the majority, they will help you when you're in the minority. Mm-hmm. And he he was he was very pragmatic about his political beliefs. I was probably a little bit more conservative and strident than he was. Yeah. Did I you was being generous to myself? Okay. <laughs> did, <laughs> did you uh, do you remember having any political disagreements with your father? Political disagreements. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the one the one thing that we I don't think Dad ever saw uh, what Oliver North saw, mm-hmm. and when Oliver North was testifying for Congress about the threats that about Osama bin Laden, my dad thought Oliver North was a fraud. Okay, and I didn't see him as that way. And of course, Dad wasn't alive to see the what nine eleven did, but uh, I don't think Dad appreciated that uh, uh, Muslim extremism at that time I think it was maybe just too much for him to grasp Okay, as being a real threat to the United States but that was about it yeah okay um, let's see did you get married at all pardon uh, when if at all did you get married oh I got married in uh, 1969. Okay. My wife, my wife is Sally, and we have four sons. Okay, cool. All adult now, and I've got ten grandchildren. And one's a pre- one of them is a freshman at Ball State, and one of them is three years old, so i got them spread all over the place. Oh, wow. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so when you decided to get involved in politics, was your family... Like your wife and children supportive of that? Uh, yes. Yeah, they sure were. Yeah, okay. My wife knew I'd always wanted to get into it. She knew that I'd stood down for a lot of years. I don't... I took her on a cruise to, <laughs> to break it to her that I'd filed. But, <laughs> <than that. laughs> but uh, she took it okay. And she was a loyal supporter. She went door to door with me, walked a thousand miles, and did all the parades and all the stuff you do, all the different things you attend. She was always there. Yeah. And my kids, when they were little, you know, I, I they'd be on my having my t-shirts, and they'd be out going up and down the streets with their friends and having carrying banners and different stuff. They after they got older, they didn't want any part of that, but. When they were little, when they were like 10, 11, and 12, they were pretty good champions. Yeah, okay. Um, did you have any national political heroes when you were first getting involved in politics? 
Well, I liked Barry Goldwater as a young man. Okay. Um, I liked Bobby Kennedy. Uh, are you, you mean contemporary? I had I had a great admiration for Abraham Lincoln. I okay. studied him. I bought I bought every book I could buy on him as a kid. And yeah. had everything about him I could read. Yeah, that's cool. But uh now, when you uh, started to run for state government, did you have a particular campaign strategy at all? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> I have three main. I, I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter. Okay. Second Amendment guy, and, and I'm a pro-life, I was a pro-life guy. Um, my wife was president of the Pregnancy Help Center here in, in the county, and and uh, I basically said, I'm pro-life and pro-gun, and if you don't like it, don't vote for me. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, these are a couple of things that I'm not going to bend on, and I figured if I got elected, that was okay with my constituency, and I always made sure that was front and center. No false advertising. Um, and I was uh, pretty strict on crime, crim, criminal law. I, when there, when I, just before I ran, there was a young girl, and I cannot for the life of me remember her name, but she was down in the Madison area, and she had been brutally tortured by her friends, as in quote, air quotes, and uh, they burned her and mutilated her and tortured her and uh, drove her around in that condition in the back of a trunk. They finally killed her. Yikes. And the, I remember the judge saying that he wished he could give the people more than 60 years, but he couldn't. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm a lawyer, and why can't he? And I started researching, and I, one of my very first bills was, and actually one of my very last bills, I had, was the same thing. I passed a law, it took me two years to get it through, but if you burn, disfigure, torture, or mutilate a victim causing death, then you could give the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Yeah. Well, well as it turned out, we had the decapitation uh, event here in Indiana, and there was a case, I think it was State of Indiana versus Roy Clark, or Roy Ward, Roy Ward, I think it was. Yeah, Roy Ward. And uh, they had held, the Supreme Court had held something to the effect that uh, if you decapitate a person, it's, it's not necessarily a mutilation because death is instant when they swing the sword to cut off the head. So I amended that law that I had changed in 1990, about 96, to add decapitation. Okay, but, yeah. But uh, ironic, that was my first and probably my last bill, but uh, I was chairman of, uh, when I was in the Senate, of the um, 
criminal law and corrections and uh, committee. And then I ended up being chairman of judiciary committee, but I was always pretty tough on I I changed the law that says that you get a 50 day per day credit good time. I changed that to you have to serve 75% of your sentence. Spent the last five years, four or five years of my Senate career, we rewrote the entire criminal code. Wow, okay. It took forever to get it done. It was called the Senate. That was actually the House Bill 106, but I ended up doing a lot of work. Yeah, okay. Um, Carried it in the Senate. Now, who was your main opponent when you ran for office? Well, the very first opponent I had was a lady that had served one term in the House of Representatives. Her name was Linda Henderson. I came in 94 when we had, that was when Newt Gingrich had the contract with America and Paul Manweiler had the contract with Indiana. Mm-hmm. They'd been in a minority and uh, the Republicans had for quite some time and there was a, they were allowing proxy votes and committees and all kinds of stuff and we we ran on a conservative plank. I think we elected that year, I want to say 16 or 17 Republicans into the House. We went into the majority. Then the next term we ran, we went into the 50-50 House. But the Democrats had the governorship, so they were in control of the speakership and the, all the committee chairs. And then the last four years in the House, I was in the minority. Okay. But uh, then I ran, I don't know, I think they ran her against me a second time. Then they didn't run anybody against me after that. Uh, in the Senate, I had a young guy run against me, Cole Glacier, I think it was his name. And then I beat him handily, and then they didn't run anybody against me. So. I had some contested elections and some uncontested. Yeah, okay. And what did you think of the election process throughout all these elections? Did it seem like a pretty smooth process? or? Well, it's an expensive process. Okay, my yeah. Dad, my dad, when he ran for Senate, he spent $500. When I ran for the House of Representatives... That was the number one targeted race for that year. And we spent a little over $75,000. Wow. And that, that, that today, under today's figures, is chunk change, what they spend today on elections. So, yeah. Uh, it's very expensive. And, uh, but the election process, it is what it is. I, I, it's a good process if you can, if you're sure of the vote. That's the problem I see with the, with the way votes are going. Mm-hmm. But I'm old-fashioned. Yeah. Probably, you ought to have an election in one day. If you don't have enough gumption to get to the polls in one day, you probably shouldn't be voting anyhow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't believe in it. People who are uninformed shouldn't vote. And they, they have a civic obligation to know what in the hell it is they're voting for. I don't care how they vote, but they just have an obligation to be an intelligent voter. Yeah. Just to vote a certain way because someone 
says, well, you need to go in there and vote this way or that way. You know, that's that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have any problem with the election process. Yeah, okay. Now, what was your reaction when you found out that you won your first election to get into office in 94? You're, you're excited, of course. You go through in a contested election. There, uh, and uh, it's an awesome responsibility. All of a sudden, it hits you that it's a serious and awesome responsibility. And I never walked into the state house that I didn't always stop on the north side. There was a two other marble pillars on the inside of that. As you walk up the steps from the north parking lot, as you go into the state house on the right hand side, there's a gray marble pillar and there's a dark gray spot about seven or eight feet off the ground, seven feet. And I'd always touch that and put my hand on it and say a little prayer. And, uh, mm, okay. Give me the. Uh, I was thankful. Uh, I wanted to do the job right and uh, hope that I would. No. I, I, I believe that I represent, and I believe in a representative form of government. And there were times when I voted the way my constituents wanted me to that the governors didn't want me to. I mean, my, the people in my area hated the Daylight Saving Times bill. Ah, uh, okay. And, and when I was in the House and Evan By wanted it, it was a Republican thing to, to, to do to be against it. But then when I got into the Senate, because Mitch Downs wanted it, it was the Republican thing to want. Yeah. Well, my constituents didn't like it. When Evan Bayh was governor, they didn't like it when Mitch Daniels was governor. And I was going to vote the way my constituents wanted. And that, that, that really made Mitch Daniels mad. <laughs> Real mad. Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't help it. I just told him, I said, well, I'm sorry, Governor. He calls, his, he, he, you know, the governor calls you down to the his office for a one-on-one, -on -one and you have a little chit-chat, you know, and how does your wife end up? Then it gets down to business. Well, how are you going to vote on this, or how are you going to vote on that? And I told him I couldn't give him that vote. And he, he was not a happy man. So, sure. But, you know, it's okay. He didn't elect me. My voters did. True. Yeah. And, uh, so I didn't have any problem with that. I, I didn't lose any sleep. I always tried to do what my constituents, what I thought my constituents would want, and I had a pretty good feel of the pulse of my people in my district. I I kept my ears open and kept kept close to the ground. I basically knew what people were saying and on the street and what they wanted. Yeah. Now, did you have a pretty sort of good expectation for what the legislative process was going to be when you first got into office because your dad had served, or was there a learning curve at all? Or there was a there was a, a huge learning curve. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not what you would think at all, and and Dad never other than telling me generally how he felt that you should always, you know, work with people across the aisle. He said they've got constituents at home, too, that they've got to answer to, and they want things for their district. 
Well, that's true on a lot of legislation, but some legislation is very, it doesn't have anything to do with things back in your district. It has it's big issues big, that affect the entire state. And uh, so it, I was not aware um, of the hardball. Yeah. It, it, can get, it can get brutally hard. Uh, we had a tort reform bill one time, and uh, I, I was going to vote against it, and that was not the Republican thing to do. And I, I said, well, I, I'm going to stick with my vote. I was in the Speaker's office one time, and the Speaker's secretary said, you're going to have a phone call. And... Uh, the speaker's office in a few minutes, Brent going into the speaker's office and the phone's going to ring. I thought, that's weird. <laughs> so I went into the speaker's office and the speaker wasn't in there. And the phone rang. And it was Vice President Dan Quayle. <laughs> now, I knew Dan. Dan's brother-in-law was Jim Tucker. Yeah. Jim's sister was Marilyn Tucker Quayle. Jim was a close friend of mine, a hunting buddy of mine, and we went to law school together and practiced law in neighboring counties. I was his co-counsel in criminal and civil cases and vice versa. I knew Jim like a, a brother. Well, there, and I'd, I'd hunted with Dan. I'd shot with Dan down at Friendship, Indiana. He even borrowed my guns one time to shoot down at Friendship. It's a National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. So I knew Dan well. And he, he said that he wanted, he, they needed my vote. Could he, is there anything he could say that would change my vote? Because they knew that I was friends with him. They were trying to, they didn't, they knew that they could, they could put the pressure of the vice president on me. Yeah. And I said, Dan, I'll tell you what. I said, if your brother-in-law, Jim Tucker, will call me and tell me that, and you both, that he thinks that that's a, this bill is the right thing to do with regard to injured people in the state of Indiana. I'll change my vote. I'll vote exactly the way Jim Tucker, because I trust that man's judgment when it comes to doing the right thing for people who are looking to the court system to get a remedy for damages and injuries caused at the fault of somebody else. Right. He said, okay. Thank you, Prince. Nice talking to you. <laughs> he wasn't about to call his brother-in-law because he knew Jim's answer. <laughs> so I mean, it, 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 and that, I've seen other things. I'm not. There was one thing that there was a couple things that I saw where they it, it got really you know, threatening a spouse with losing their job, um, getting people. It, it, it's tough. It, it's, if you think it's softball up there, it's not. It's hardball. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how do you keep track of the needs and wants of your constituents? Well, every year you put out a, a questionnaire. But I practice law, you know, 306. Well, other than when you're in the legislature, you practice law and you're, you're out amongst the community. And once they know you're in politics, you can't go to Walmart or... Lowe's or anything or the grocery store without people stopping you and talking. I'm a conversationist. I'll talk to a fence post. And uh, so, I mean, you just you just hear and listen. Listen to what they're saying. 
your clients will sit down and while you're sitting in your office, they'll start talking politics with you. Right. So you get a, you just have to be a good listener. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how often did you have to work with the Democratic Party to get legislation passed? Well, when I was in the minority, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And uh, and when I was in the uh, Senate, I had in my Judiciary Committee, I had a Democrat. Liberal Democrat senator from northwestern part of the state, Karen Tallian. And I respected her opinion greatly. And any time I had an issue and we were going to send it to a subcommittee for further research or workup or this bill's language needs to be tightened up or needs to be rewrapped, it needs to be made better. Because in judiciary, I knew that she would put her politics aside. She was a lawyer first, and she knew it was important that you're going to have good dispensation of, of law in Indiana. You have to have good and well-drafted statutes to get the, for the courts and the judges and the lawyers to work with. And uh, I knew she would always do it right. And someone said one time, said, how come you always appoint a Democrat <laughs> to head up your subcommittees? And I said, because she's the best. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I trust her. Yeah. But, uh, no, I, I didn't have any problem working with Democrats. And so what was the general atmosphere like then between Democrats and Republicans when you served? Well, when I was in the House, it was terrible. But that was one of the reasons I left politics in the House. I got out. I'd had all I could take. Mm. Um, you would, you could not be recognized. You, you could have a good idea uh, for a bill. Uh, you know, I figured because you were a lawyer, you you could see a, a bill that was drafted that was going to change a certain statute with whether it pertained to probate or adoption or whatever, and you could see that it was not workable. Uh, you, as you read the statute, you imagine yourself using that as a lawyer, and you could say, well, that isn't going to work. Here's the problems here. And you would try to file an amendment to make it a better bill, and it, it, it's not recognized. Okay. This is not going to be recognized. You, you didn't have a brain. It didn't matter if it was a good idea. All we were at that point in time, we were quorum meat. You could have put a cadaver up there and stuck a tie on him, and as long as he was in the seat and could somebody punch your button green, and, okay, we've got enough people here to, we've got a quorum, we can start conducting business. That's all it was. After that, you could walk out of the house chambers and take a break or something. It didn't matter. It, 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 uh, it was just terrible. Wow. I did not like that at all. I had a bill that was, I called it the breast reconstruction surgery bill. And at that point in time, if a woman had breast cancer and she had her breast removed and she wanted to have an implant put in to make her 
say her left side match her right side, have some symmetry. That was considered cosmetic surgery. Now, some of the insurance companies covered it, but, quote, the good insurance companies. I like that one. That's what I was told. Mm-hmm. And then the, some of the insurance companies didn't, and I had an aunt that had had breast cancer, and, and I had a friend that had had breast cancer, and I thought, that's bullshit. So I filed a bill that said that if you're going to sell uh, health insurance inside the state of Indiana, you had to cover this as necessary, not cosmetic. Well, it, it flew through. And uh, Senator Gard carried it in the, in the Senate. And she had, it was a breast cancer survivor. And she added an amendment to the bill that said that if you had a genetic test uh, and it showed a propensity for a disease, that they could, the insurance companies could not use that propensity diagnosis as a reason to uh, deny coverage. And uh, so it came back to the House because it, it had been modified. And I couldn't get a vote on it. Mm. All of a sudden the bill was stalled in the House and it was getting late. And uh, John Gregg was the Speaker of the House and he, he motioned to me and I came up to the to the Speaker's stand and he said, you're on a, you're on a, you attention, attention seeking word that I won't repeat. And I said, what are you talking about, Mr. Speaker? And he said, you haven't seen what's outside? And I said, no, I really don't. You didn't have anything to do with that? And I said, no. Well, Senator Gard had seen that the bill was stalled in the House. And she had organized a group of people, breast cancer survivors, from the Marion County area to be on the State House steps. They were all carrying their signs and everything, hundreds of them. Let that bill go, you know, let it be passed. So he yeah. called it down. He called it down, of course, it passed. There wasn't a man in the world that would vote against that, for crying out loud. And uh, I said to the guys, I said, you know, if it was testicular cancer and you were wanting a prosthetic, you, you wouldn't have any problem vote, voting for this bill, you know, so don't be stupid. And um, it, the bill passed, but uh, it, it took that kind of a thing to even get my bill heard because I was a Republican, I think. Mm, okay. I, guess, I don't know. Either that or some pressure putting on somebody from from some of the medical insurance companies. I never knew exactly where the pressure was coming from because I thought it was such a common sense bill. And if the good insurance companies, quote, already covered that, then why did they care what happened to the bad insurance companies, right? Right, yeah. So. Yeah. So, um... So I guess what kind of made you dislike sort of state politics then? It sounds like it might be like a combination of partisanship and just, I don't know, just kind of sketchy things going on or? No, I, I mean, there's always partisanship. I mean, you, nobody wants to be in the minority. Okay. You have virtually no power. You don't. The committees are made up of 
majority, and, and you, there will always be less minority members on the committee than the majority. And the majority gets to pick the chairman, and they control the agenda. And, I mean, and that's why people work so hard to get control. It's no different at the federal level. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's who gets to drive the ship. Yeah. Who gets to be in the pilot house? Fact of life. If you don't like it, you know, it's, the best, it's, it's not the greatest system in the world, but I haven't found one better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. That's why I tell my, my wife, I said, I'm not the greatest husband, but you haven't found one better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, what were the differences between the House and Senate? Oh, my gosh. Well, things changed in this respect. When I was in the House, we called the Senate the dinosaurs. The dinosaurios is what we call them because they were there forever. Mm -hmm. They never changed. And they were old, we thought. And, uh, and uh, by the time I got into the Senate, it had changed a lot. In fact, I keep a, I keep the, uh, the photograph of my first year in the Senate, and every time a senator is beat, retires, or dies, I put a X through the picture, and they're all X'd out, but for, except for a couple of them. But um, so things changed. But in the House, it was it was loud and it was raucous, and. Uh, uh, People would almost like the House of Commons in England. Sometimes they'd start yelling stuff. <laughs> when you were at the, the at the podium, you'd, you'd say something. You'd hear them, you know, rah, 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 going on, and yeah. and they would they, they would pull jokes. And Jerry Dimbo was always hooking. Uh, he had a paper uh, clothespins with feathers glued to him, and. He was the expert sticking it on the back of your sport coat, and you'd go walking forward, and you'd have that feather sticking on the tail of your sport coat. It was just more fun. Um, but, uh, and there were times, and this, this was common, uh, both in Republican and Democrat, there would be times when they would pass a bill, and they knew it was crap, it had problems, the budget especially, They'd pass a budget that no more was in bounds than you couldn't spend 10 times what your income was. And they'd say things like, that's unconstitutional. Oh, that's okay. When it gets over to the Senate, they'll fix it. Oh, that's, oh, that budget's crazy. Yeah, well, you know how the Senate will do to it. They'll pare it down. They'll make it right. And so the House knew that the Senate was going to have its, would have to do the repair work. When you got to the Senate, it was more staid. It was dark in the chambers. I think it's one of the most poorly lit chambers in the, probably the 50 states. It's cold in there. You could hang meat. Wow. Uh, it, 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 it's, uh, the sound is terrible. The acoustics are terrible in there. And, uh, and it's very, um, 
you have Senate protocol, uh, a lot more than you had in the House. You had a germaneness bill. You had a germaneness rule. It had to, any amendments had to be germane to the, the to the bill. It didn't in the House. You could pass anything with anything uh, in the House, but um, it, it was more serious. And I enjoyed that. I mean, I, I liked it. I liked the responsibility. I liked that the hard work got done there, and uh, and the fact that you didn't have to run every two years. When you're in the house, you're running all the time. In the Senate, you just. In fact, my dad said you don't ever want to run for the house. He said I never raised a son stupid enough to run for the House of Representatives. I said, well, why is that, Dad? He said, well, you got to run every two years. All you do is you have to raise. You're in a constant fundraising mode all the time. And, uh, but, uh, he did have a son that was stupid enough to run for the house. That was me. But, uh, <laughs> but the, I did enjoy the Senate as far as the legislative work. As far as the atmosphere, it was not near the, the fun that we had in the house. Yeah. Okay. Now, how influential would you say lobbyists were in the Indiana General Assembly? Lobbyists are necessary. They are, you cannot become an expert on everything that comes through. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have to depend, lobbyists are a great source of information. And they will educate you, you know, they'll, they'll come and they, they'll be for and against. And they're, I found them to be, uh, they'll tell you, most of them will say, here's the upsides, here's the downsides. They're usually quite frank. Um, I found them to be necessary. I didn't, I'm not saying a necessary evil. I think they're necessary, and I found them all to be professional. And okay. They took their job seriously. And they were honest. I never, I don't, I only had, I only had in 20 years, I only had one lobbyist lie to me one time. Okay. And uh, that I knew of. And uh, I knew it was an obvious lie. But, um, but no, I found them okay. Now, do you think, like, any campaign donations or gifts had much influence on politicians when they served, or do you think it didn't really affect people much? That, that's a wonderful question, and we've, uh, legislators have talked about that around the, the, the table in the evenings after the legislation rating session's over with. Yeah. I've never... If you if you let a campaign contribution influence your vote, you're not very much of a. I mean, you're not very much of a person. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I and I can't think that. A, I, I'm not naive. I understand that when people think they give you a, con, a contribution, that that you should do this or that. But um, I. <laughs> I had one guy one time, he, he always contributed to the, the company or the organization that he represented, always gave me a, usually about $500 to $1,000 a year every time I ever had a, a campaign. Wasn't a lot, but wasn't, I mean, you, you don't forget those things. You, I don't care who it is. 
you look at your campaigns, I, I know at the federal level they probably don't, but when you're at the state level, you look to see who's giving you money. So you got to watch your bank account. You can't spend more than, than you've got. And uh, he said, I don't know why I give, give you money every year. You never voted for one thing I ever wanted in my life. I started laughing. I said, well, that's the way it goes, you know. But, but uh, he said, I don't give it to you because I want you to vote some way. He said, I give it to you because I know that you'll do generally the right thing. And uh, I appreciated that he said that. I didn't give him, you know, what he wanted, but but he trusted my judgment. And he said, someday you, you might vote <laughs> my way. I said, well, you never know. But I, I never let it please me. Now, I can't speak for other people at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's see, how influential would you say uh, the redistricting process was to helping political... I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Sorry, yeah. Uh, how influential would you say the redistricting process was on like how it affect political parties? Hmm. Well, I was never part of the redistricting committee. Um... I have my district chopped up so at different times. It, it's it's but it's the way it is. You, 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 for example, I, I when I was in the Senate, I had Orange County and uh, part of Washington County, and you make your connections and you go to third houses and you meet the people and and you do what you got to do and you. You get knowing down in that district, and all of a sudden, I'm my district, they're out of my district, and I'm up in Bartholomew County. And I've, <laughs> yeah. I'd driven through Bartholomew County. I didn't know anybody, didn't know a soul there. So it, it's, it's weird, and you just sort of have to start over again and make new connections and, and uh, reintroduce yourself to people. So it, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, based on your experiences in the General Assembly, is there anything that you would want to change about the legislative process? Diet at midnight, and 
you have no idea what's in that damn thing. And uh, that that's not good. And, and yeah. You should never have to have vote on a bill that you've... And, and in the, you know, you, unlike the federal government, you don't have a present button. You got a red button and you got a green button. Either vote for something or against it. You don't get to say present. I, I'm punting. You don't get to do that. Mm. So I, I never thought that was a good procedure. You ought to have the bill. And there's no damn reason that they couldn't get a budget done at least two or three days before the end of session. You, you can't tell me that something happened in the last two days that all of a sudden they got that budget done. I'm not that stupid. Yeah. They knew that they knew that they were going to cram that thing down. And that, I thought, was disrespectful. Disrespectful to everybody. And it was, and it was disrespectful to the, to the system. Sure. Of government. Um, let's see. What were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the assembly? Well, believe it or not, the thing that I got the most mail on, and there's not even a close second on this, um, was the daylight savings time bill. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And these are, you know, some, a lot of these, a lot of times you'll get. Some organization will be pro or con, and they've got these form letters they they send out. You, you know, Senator Steele, and they'll write in Steele, and then they'll sign their name, and the, the letter's the same. And you might get 500 of those, you know. Mm. The, the savings time, but these are handwritten letters that people sit down and wrote and either printed or wrote in cursive. It wasn't some form letter that was put out. These people were writing from their heart and telling you how they thought about it. And it's, it's not even close. Um, this amount of angst. And um, the tort reform bill and the right to work bill. Those were the four bills that, in my 20 years that probably... And it's, it's funny how some issues come back. Yeah. When my, dad, when my dad was in the Senate, the right to work bill was one of the biggest, hottest bills that there was. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Senate, it was, one of the, it was one of those issues that kept coming around, just like the, the, the daylight saving time bill. It was an issue in the 50s, and there it was in the, in the 90s. Yeah. 2000, 2000 so it, some things just never go away. But, uh, yeah, those are the four main ones. Okay. Let's see. So um, going through, like, newspaper articles and stuff, I saw some different sort of legislative debates that were going on when you served. Um, do you remember anything about uh, legislation that was – I guess, created to try to combat uh, meth in Indiana? Combat what? Uh, meth, the drug meth. Oh, 
Yeah. When I was in the House of Representatives, meth was, um, at that point in time, back in the 90s, and I'm, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm, see, I left the House in 2002. I was in the minority, and I'm thinking I maybe filed it in 98 and in 2000 both. I had a state trooper come to me, and he said, meth is being made. At that point in time, not now it's Mexican meth. You can buy it cheaper than you can make it. Mm-hmm. Back then, they were having these uh, clandestine labs, meth houses. We were having... Uh, constituents, I was having clients who, who had rented, maybe they were landlord and had a house rented out and a can of cooked meth in it, and then you had to decontaminate the house. It was costing them thousands of dollars. We had, every night, I, I cut the clippings out for the number of meth arrests in my county, and, and I kept them in an uh, album, and there were just dozens of them. Lawrence County was at one time the meth capital. Wow of the state, and I've had a bill that Lloyd, that state trooper said that one thing that they've got to have is a pseudo And it's not against the law to have pseudo And we need to have the, the, the various things that, he said that you can't arrest anybody for having battery acid or some of the other chemicals that went into it, but he said that Despite their formula, they all have to have pseudofedrin. So he said, what we need to do is we need to have a felony to possess a large amount of pseudofedrin, a small amount. You don't want to arrest people to have a felony because you had some cold, you know, carcinogen cold tablets or something. But sure. he said, when you got a large amount of ephedrine, you should be allowed to have a felony, and that allows us to have a search warrant. So I had a bill or you possess a certain gram weight of pseudofedrin, and I made it pretty daggum high, quite frankly. Uh, a lot of it to, to be a felony. And I couldn't get that damn bill through, and I never did. And mm. I, I, remember, I remember one of my last speeches I gave to the House of Representatives. I, I showed them all my clippings, and I said, my county has the unenviable distinction of being the number one cap meth capital county in the state. And I said, if you don't have it, the problem in your county now, which some of them didn't, I said, you're going to. And you, you, someday you'll, want to, you'll wish that you pass this bill. Right. Eventually it became a problem statewide. And, and, and still is to this day, not the extent that fentanyl is, but, uh, but it's still a problem. But it's Mexican meth now. Mm, okay. They don't make it in labs anymore. Not here. Um, let's see. Another uh, piece of legislation I saw being debated when you served was, uh, I guess, regarding the Ten Commandments. Do you remember something about that? Yes. The Ten Commandment bill, sure. I had a, at that point in time, we had a Ten Commandments Frank Bannon was the governor the first year. We had a Ten Commandments monument on the uh, southwest corner of the State House lawn. 
And a guy got in the nose of Bill up on that lawn and ran into it and knocked it down. The state of Indiana moved it off and it's broken pieces to a warehouse. Hmm. They found those pieces in the warehouse and uh, David Lohr, who was a representative at that time, had, had located them. And he wanted to know if, because I'm from the limestone county of the state, if, if we had the ability to glue the thing back together. We didn't realize how, at that point in time, none of us had seen how destroyed it was. Mm, okay. So I, I contacted some local mills, and there are some fantastic epoxies that our stone masons have down here, uh, cutters and fabricators, that, that can glue limestone back together, and you can hardly see the seam, and it's strong, it's actually stronger than, the, than before. And I said, yes, we could do that. And we couldn't, couldn't get it done. So I got the bright idea. I went to uh, Elliott Stone Company, and they donated the stone. And I went to one of our leading mills here in town, and they milled out the Ten Commandments Monument, a new one to place in the southwest corner. And I went to the governor, O'Bannon, Frank O'Bannon, and I called him on the phone, and I said, if I get this done, if I get this statue with this monument done to you, do I have your permission to put it up there? And he said, sure you do. He said, just do me a favor. I said, what's that? He said, I've always loved the Bill of Rights. I want the Bill of Rights on one side and the Ten Commandments on the other. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I had that done. And by the, by the time we got it done, um, I, I sent... I sent an email to the governor, and I said, it's, at the, it's, at, it's being lettered at, as, as I speak, and I said, it'll be done in about a week. And I said, I want you to know that uh, we'll be bringing it up. And I had already arranged for a semi and a crane to come and set the stone. It wasn't a small thing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Limestone's about 130 pounds per cubic foot. And uh, he was campaigning at that time, and he made the announcement that he was going to put the Ten Commandments monument on the State House lawn. And I got a phone call from somebody in Indianapolis and said, have you heard the governor's most recent announcement? I said, no. And they read it to me, and I said, oh, crap. We were sued immediately. Okay. And, and uh, there was an injunction issued, and and, and they won. And uh, there was a Supreme Court decision based on a case out of Texas that said that you could put a Ten Commandments monument on the State House lawn if there were other historical monuments. Well, my God, there, you look around the State House, there's George Washington and Hendricks, there's Indians on the top, there's World War One soldiers, World War Two soldiers, Korean War veterans, Civil War. If you look, you can find them depicted either in stone or in, in bronze all over that state house. Yeah. So it was a, it was a, there were plenty of other historical monuments that, that would justify this case falling right in line. So 
he eventually leaves office with his health problems. I couldn't get Kernan to do it. I couldn't get, I talked to uh, Mitch Daniels twice. I thought maybe, I, he didn't want the controversy and I thought, well, maybe in his second term he would uh, authorize the, re the placement of it or file suit to lift the injunction. And uh, I never could get a governor to do that after that. And, it, and the monument still sits down here in Lawrence County in a, in a, along Highway 37 and, and 39th Street Christian Church sits out there with the flagpoles on either side of it and it's lit at nighttime. Hmm, okay. It, it just never made it. Yeah. Interesting, okay. Um, what do you remember about legislation that was to, like, try and monitor child molesters? Say that again, I'm sorry. Um, there was some other legislation I saw in the newspapers about trying to, like, monitor child molesters. Do you remember something? Oh, yeah. Um, the, uh, I felt that if you were a, a child molester, that you should have to wear your ankle uh, monitor the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Because I had talked, excuse me, just yeah. I talked to enough of the psychiatrists from the state hospital and in the prison system to know that the chance of recidivism for a pedophile was extreme and the chance of, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. And the chance of them being uh, changed in any positive way was slim to none. And uh, I, I don't have any tolerance at all for anybody that hurts a little child. Sure. But, and uh, I thought they should wear an ankle bracelet forever. Yeah, okay. Um, what about legislation regarding protests at funerals? Well, that was Senate Bill number one. Um, that was the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, I didn't think that at a, that when you've lost someone in the military and you're having a funeral that, that those bunch of crazy bastards should have a right to come and, and protest at your funeral. Yeah. Sure, they protest, but there's a time and a place and everything. Right. You don't get to come in and protest when my wife's giving birth. You don't get to come into the delivery room. And when I'm burying that same kid, you don't have a right to come to the gravesite when I put him in the, him or her in the ground. Right. That's the way I felt about it. And uh, when Mitch Daniels heard about that bill that I had, he he called and said, "We're moving that to Senate Bill Number One." And it, they, I don't know that ever in the history of the state of Indiana a bill was pushed through faster. They suspended the rules, both houses. It punched through. You'd have to look at the timeline on it, but it was instead of weeks, it was just a matter of days. Hmm. And he signed, and I've got a picture of him signing that bill on, my, on the wall of my law office right to this day, but the in a frame with a pen and everything on it. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was the weather, and they came to Bedford and protested at my church and everything. You know, but it was okay. Yeah. Wow. Um. 
Let's see. Also, last thing I saw in the newspaper is about like uh, marijuana legislation. What do you remember about that? Well, I felt that a, a, a small amount of marijuana, and they said it was a decriminalization, and I guess it was, uh, but I didn't see it as that. It was still, under my proposal, it would still be a criminal misdemeanor, but you'd pay a fine on your first offense instead of have the possibility of any jail time. I just, but that didn't go anywhere either. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I just thought that jail time for for a very small amount, and I think it was under 10 grams, as I recall the bill, basically a joint. If you got caught with that, you shouldn't be, they can find the snot out of them. I don't care, but they, I didn't think you ought to be facing jail time and cost you lose a job maybe in, your wife and kids end up drawing welfare because you lost your job you know for doing for doing that sure I just didn't believe in that yeah okay because they the wife and kids pay the price for the dad's stupid mistake and then we the taxpayers end up supporting them yeah through the welfare it just seemed like a non-productive way to handle that problem. Right. But it got all the media. It was the decriminalization of marijuana. <laughs> yeah. Um, how would you summarize your time then overall as a state legislator? I would rate it an A+. Plus. I loved it. Uh, I loved every minute of it. I miss it and to a large extent. I met, I made some wonderful friends, lifelong friends, and uh, Bill Friend, my very first person I ever met, my wife and I drove up to Indianapolis and I was getting ready to, she was going to be there to watch me sworn in the next day and there was a, we went out to eat at a restaurant and I saw a couple sitting over there at, her, at a table and he had a, one of those little blue legislative pins on the lapel, so I thought, well, I think that's a legislator. <laughs> didn't know if he was a Republican or a Democrat so I went over and introduced myself to him and we, they invited us to sit down at their table and we did and they've been lifelong friends he and I roomed together for oh my gosh probably seven years we roomed together shared a room at the Columbia Club I Oh, wow. We, <laughs> we, had, we brought in an air mattress. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we split the, the weekly room rent. And one week he got the bed and I got the air mattress. And then the next week I got the bed and he had to sleep on their mattress. And we did that till the Columbia Club caught us. <laughs> they, <laughs> they told us that that wasn't allowed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, uh, <laughs> but he's, and then Jim Buck, he was a friend of mine in the house. And um, then he came over to the Senate, and he's still a close friend. Wow. Well, I met so many, many good friends in there. I miss them. But most of my all, all friends are all gone. Jim Buck's still in the Senate. But uh, about everybody else is gone. So if I was still there, I wouldn't like it. Would, uh, but it was a time to go when I left, but uh, yeah. on my own accord. There's only three ways you leave that place. On your own, at the top of your game. Toes up, dead, died in office, or go out of there defeated. Hmm. The, the last two didn't sound very appealing to me. Sure. So I decided to quit on my own. 
didn't want to be there beyond 70 years of age. I had made a term limit pledge, actually, when I was in the House of Representatives and forgot I'd done it. I was Republican whip at that time, and I told my wife I was going to refile, and she said, you can't refile, you made a term limit pledge. I said, I did. I did, I'd forgotten it. She said, you did. You ran a radio ad. And I went to the radio station, they keep your ads archived, and uh, <laughs> I pulled up the drawer and looked at my transcript, and I sure as hell did say that, so I... I didn't file. Yeah. I kept my promise. But, uh, and I wasn't sure I'd ever get back in politics again. And uh, Becky Skillman walked again to my office a second time, and, and she said, I want to ask you a favor. And I said, what's that? And she said, I want to have a chance to be lieutenant governor, run for lieutenant governor. And I said, well, great. I've been her campaign chairman when she ran for Senate. I said, I'll, be, I'll do anything I can to help you, Becky. And she said, well, I want you to run for my seat. I said, oh, dude. She said, well, you always wanted it. She said, I don't want to turn it over to anybody but you. So I had to go talk to my brother, who's my law partner, because when you're out of the office, your your law partner has to take up the slack for you while you're gone. Right. If I hadn't had him, I don't, I don't know how in the world I could have done it. He kept the law office going handled my clients for me while we were gone Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. He got to come home and practice law on Friday. It's a hard way to do for three or four months each year. He did it. He never bitched or cried or cried. And I asked him about it. He said, oh, I think you ought to do it. He said, I know you miss it. And he said, but it would be a good opportunity. And I did. But, uh, no, I love it. I loved it. And uh, I rated it one of the best experiences of my life. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, Besides that, when you're practicing law and you crack a book and you see a statute that was messed up and just not working good, I could always go up there and tweak it, you know. Yeah, that's true. I, I, called, I called them lawyer bills. I said, this isn't going to interest anybody up here except the lawyers. And, the, and that's <laughs> why this statute needs to be changed. Yeah. I rewrote the, uh, the whole law and partition. And uh, Harry Cook and I did. He was in the house, and I rewrote it and, and sent it over to the house. And it's still a very good way to handle partition suits in Indiana. Yeah. Okay. So, what lessons did you learn from your experiences then? that there's 
more gray area and less black and white. And uh, but I think I would have learned that anyhow, uh, just from dealing with clients and stuff through the years. Yeah. I, I thought there's very few absolutisms in life. Yeah, makes sense. Um, the only thing that stays absolute with me is my faith. Yeah. That doesn't change, but but uh, the rest of it does. Right. Uh, did you have any regrets as a legislator? Yeah. Yeah. Being away from my boys growing up. Um, there were things that I missed. January, February, March, and April. Ball games. Stuff. I had four sons. They were all very active in veins. And uh, you don't get that time back. And uh, they're only young ones. And when that's gone, it's gone. And that that is a regret, but it's an unavoidable one. Uh, it goes with the turf, and I knew it. Sure. So if I was disappointed with it, and well, I burn a blister on my own rear end and I'm going to just have to sit on it because it, I, I do live with regrets in, in that regard. But, and I've apologized to all my kids. And they said, oh, Dad, nothing to it. Then. Don't worry about that. Yeah. I know they said that because they're my sons. And they, they know that's probably the right thing to say, but there were times when I should have been there. Mm. And I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and time away from your wife. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You, you don't get that. You don't get that time back. And and you're in your forties and fifties, and that's that's in your prime of your life. It was for me. And uh, when you get out, you're older, and all of a sudden it's like, gee, we should have done this, or we should have done that. We, I had a, I had a couple of let. I had two senators come to me. I won't mention their names. They both lost their wives during the legislative sessions. One of them had promised his wife he would not ever run again. And the party came to him and said, oh, we need you to hold that seat. We don't want to spend money down there. Blah, blah, blah. And he ran one more time. And his wife died. And uh, he would come and sit in my little cubicle and cry. Wow. Like a baby. I shouldn't have run. All those parades and all those dinners, and she was always there. We should have gone, I should, we should have traveled. Oh man, he was sick. And then, that, then it happened to another senator. And I thought, man, you can stay in this job and end up just like him. And I wasn't gonna do that. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Um, do you have a proudest moment as a legislator? Mm. <laughs> no, I, I can't say. I had a lot of good, I had a lot of good moments. I can't say one was okay. greater than the other. Um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Well, 
as a part-time job, but it's a full-time job. And it will literally, if you go to every meeting that you're asked to go to, to every third house you're asked to go to, it will literally consume every bit of every day. And, and it's, you've got to understand that and you got to learn how to prioritize your time as best you can, because uh, it will eat you up. It will take. It's, it's, the legislator is a jealous lover. She's like a jealous mistress. She will take all your time if you give it to her. Mm, okay. Um, what would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? makes sense um, see last set of questions here um, 
how has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? nothing to do with the legislature yet it does in a, I guess in an indirect way but the um, the population is moving away from and has when, when and it was all due to rural electric and then the various water corporations not-for-profit water corporations that provided Potable water and electricity all over. Mm-hmm. So they used to, and we're still an agricultural state. I understand that, but so much of the farmland is now being occupied by homes and um, places that you know used to be fields or now might have a home sitting on the middle. 30 acre and uh, so the uh, we're becoming a more the population density in the rural area is becoming more and more and more and it's only going to exacerbate as, as time goes on the population grows there's only so much land but I I, I see that and when we lose our agricultural base and we're no longer an agricultural state what are we yeah uh, where, where do you get your are we a manufacturing state? What are we? How do we derive our income? Is it what's your tax base? So that's the main change I've seen just from what I saw as a kid growing up to what I see now. Sure. Um, That'll affect how legislatures conduct themselves in the future, how they get their income. Yeah, that's true. There's only one way to get it. Yeah. Through taxes. Taxes and fees. Uh, how has the Indiana General Assembly changed? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the main thing is there is a huge. People talk about term limits. We need term limits. Well, not, not in the Indiana legislature you don't. There's a huge turnover. There's nobody in the House. I mean, by the time I got into the Senate, I'd left in 2002 and I ran in 2004. By 2010, I'd, I hardly knew anybody in the House. Okay. And the Senate changed drastically. I mean, there were people in and out of that place. It, they weren't the dinosaurials anymore. Yeah. So there's a, that's the thing I've seen, there's, there's a, a quick turnover, okay. both House and Senate. Don't know that that's good or bad. I always was a, uh, I wouldn't have made a term limit pledge if I didn't believe in term limits, but the, the thing that you don't realize is that the politicians come and go, but the, those in the administration don't. They right. don't have term limits. And so much of our laws are administrative rules and regulations that are foisted by non-elected officials. 
one of the biggest mistakes that was ever made both at the state and federal levels where you allow administrative law without su sufficient legislative oversight. They passed their, their they po published their proposed rule change in a journal. Well, who the hell reads that? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it's the law. You know, and that's, I don't like that. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah. Determining this is not going to solve that problem. You, the legislators will come and go, and you still have the same people r running the show up there uh, at the, within the four walls of the state government confines, whether it's the state office building or the state house or where have you. And uh, uh, so the term limits isn't going to help you that way. You just get, you lose your institutional knowledge when you, there's something to be said for institutional knowledge when you have someone say, well, we, we tried that you know, in, in 2008 and it didn't work and here's why. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for having institutional knowledge. And if you're constantly churning the, the players, you lose that. But yeah, okay. Um, let's see, how do you think the people of Indiana have changed? Interesting. Okay. Um, last question. What do you want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? Well, they have to make their, they have, there's a right way to make your influence heard. There's a wrong way. Now, if you come up there and, and, and yell in my face, I mean, I can speak for me. I can't speak for anybody else. But I'm the kind of person that if you come
come at me and treat me in a way, I believe in the golden rule, you should treat other people exactly the way you would like to be treated. And if you are sticking a sign in my face and, and butting your chest up against me and bumping into me, which I've had happen, and yelling my face, I got enough starts in me, I'm, you know, to hell with you, you know. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I just won't put up with that. Right. And that's not a way, but, but people need to, to make their voices heard. They're, not everybody has a, a, the luxury of running for office. And, and I always knew that I, I represented the silent majority. There's people that are out here working two and three jobs trying to pay the bills, get the kids to school, go to t-ball games, da-da-da-da-da-da, this and that, and this and that. They don't have time to read everything. They assume that when they elect you that you're going to go up there and, and not embarrass them and do things right. But they need to, when there's issues that they need to be heard on, contact your legislators. I, every time, I, when I opened my mail, I opened up the stuff that was handwritten first because I knew someone took the time to sit down with a pen and paper and write me and put a stamp on it. And uh, that meant a lot to me. Yeah. And uh, so uh, contact your legislators and let them know how you feel about things. They're supposed to represent you. And if you get a legislature, if a community's got a legislator that is not representing the local morals and values and Vote him or her out. That's why we. That's why we have voting booths. Yeah. Okay. Well, is there uh, anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to mention before we finish? <laughs> well, quite frankly, I can't imagine a question <laughs> that you didn't cover. <laughs> but but you've, you've had some great questions and some made me have to really think. <laughs> good. There are very good questions. I'm not, I can't think of anything. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be a part of this project. Um, it should be a good addition to the project. So. Well, Ben, I appreciate it. And uh, 